0: All right, take your Bibles out and turn to the Old Testament book of Numbers. That's the fourth book in your Bible. We start a a new series today. We're going to take four weeks away from the doctor's cure and talk about joy, a series on, um, I'm titling Destination Joy. Now, you're going to hear me use words over the next four weeks like joy and gladness and happiness and delight, and uh, you might think that those are... uh, they have different nuances. They don't. Um, one of, the, mis- one of the, uh, the things that is uh, true in some Bible teachers' ministries, and it was mine uh, years ago as well, is that we convey that happiness is a kind of an emotional thing and joy is some super spiritual thing, and it's, it's a different kind of uh, contentment. The, Bible, the problem is the Bible doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. Um, in fact, the word joy can be used of, uh, in the scriptures of something that you shouldn't be. Uh, joyful about. And so uh, happiness and joy are probably going to be the two main words that I use, but don't try to make any distinctions uh, between them. Now we live, um, as Americans, we live in the most prosperous country in the world, really the most prosperous country the world has ever known. Um, We have more opportunities, we have more security, we have more freedom uh, than any other country in the world. And yet the uh, United Nations report that they put out every year called the World Happiness Report uh, ranks, we're ranked number 14th in the world to, in terms of uh, citizens being asked, are you happy with your life? 14th. That's, uh, that's Americans. And all the studies and surveys um, verify this, that we have, uh, we have our challenges when it comes to being happy people. Um, we're, we're not the happiest when it comes to our marriages. In fact, from 2012 to, uh, to 2014, just in those three years, the happiness quotient of husbands and wives dropped 5% from 65 to 60, saying, uh, I'm happy in my marriage. Well, only 60% now. In fact, we have the sixth highest divorce rate uh, in the world. It says uh, the studies tell us that our workers are not happy workers. 2015 study showed that uh, over 50% of our workers in America don't want to go to the uh, jobs that they go to every day. They would like to work uh, someplace else. Uh, Somewhere between uh, 15 and 19 million Americans are diagnosed with depression, and that number goes up by about 20% every year since about 2000. In fact, last year, about 1.1 million Americans tried to take their own lives, and about 43,000 of them succeeded. In fact, if you are 44 years or younger, the second highest cause of death, if you're an American, is suicide. Now, that seems odd to me when I look at the world and think about all the good things that we have compared to all the good... Things or the limited amount of good things that some other people in the world have. And one of the mistakes that I think we make sometimes as Christians is that we think uh, as believers that we don't struggle with any of these kinds of things. We don't look at the world the way other Americans might look at the world, for example, or look at our lives the way other uh, Americans might look at their lives. And I can tell you uh, both as a human being and as a pastor that that's just not the case. Um, we have as we have a lot of unhappy Christians as well, and some Christians are feel guilty about that to such a degree that if you ask them um, maybe on a Sunday morning, how are you doing? Uh, we typically answer fine, don't we? I mean that's just the kind of the neighborly um, social thing to do. But some people want to make sh- sure that nobody thinks that they're not doing really well, and then, so they don't just do fine. They do, I'm great life is great, and they start ticking off all the things that are good in their lives. And some people might genuinely mean it, but some people do this kind of over-the-top reaction that doesn't really reflect their soul because they think, if I'm a Christian, I shouldn't be feeling bad. I shouldn't be, I should never be unhappy, I, I'm, and so I'm going to deny that I have any kinds of struggles like this. What's interesting is you don't see this in Scripture, if you read the Psalms at all, you see David and the other psalmists, I mean, they just put it out there. They're, they're completely candid with God, at how they're feeling at the moment. They're completely candid with him about how they feel like he, he's not coming through for them like, like he should. Uh, these are people who are not exactly spiritual pygmies. Um, they're, they're, you would read the prophets, and they put it all out there for God. I can't believe you've called me into this ministry. And now people are taking pot shots at me. People are putting me in prison. All this is happening. Why do you let the evil, run, um, uh, evil people run amok? And, and you, <clears throat> excuse me, you look throughout, especially the Old Testament, people are just, they're just honest. I mean, uh, Elijah goes to Mount Carmel and it, uh, he has a great victory, but it looks like he's going to be put to death and he goes into hiding and he's depressed and he wants to die. Job wants to die. Jeremiah wants to die. These people want to die. And so we should be, (coughs) excuse me, we should be cautious in the body of Christ about trying to simply portray a facade that doesn't really match our hearts. There are Christians who struggle with depression. Some of you know that that was a battle of mine for uh, some time. I've been very, uh, I haven't shared many details uh, about that. Um, really, nobody but my wife knows much about that at all. Uh, but from about 1995 uh, through 2005, for about a period of 10 years, I struggled with horrific depression. And my mo- wife would remember the mornings when she'd get up out of bed, and I'd pull the covers up over my head and try to hide in this cocoon till 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning and struggle out of bed, and kind of force myself to go through my day. And then at night, just drop into bed physically emotionally and mentally exhausted i'll touch on this just a little bit more uh, on the last message some of the great heroes of the faith have struggled with depression Uh, c.h spurgeon who was probably the first uh, megachurch pastor in the mid-1800s preached to thousands upon thousands had horrific struggles with depression now unlike my depression which i knew the source of i knew the cause of Spurgeon writes that he would weep for hours and not know why he was weeping. Um, There are some uh, people who desperately think that because they have this internal um, unhappiness that it has to be this secret, and so they don't confide in anybody. Their Christian friends, their relatives don't know they're struggling with this. Uh, They would never consider going to a doctor or consider going to a counselor because uh, to them it's admitting that there's some failure in their Christian life. Uh, I want to say up front this morning, if that's you, that's a mistake. If you think that you have to portray that you have it all together, you have not understood the gospel because the gospel liberates us from having to appear a certain way. Does God want us to have joy? Absolutely. I mean, the scriptures speak about it over and over and over. But it is a calling to that, not a call to pretend that. And so, I, just to encourage you, if if you struggle, whether it's depression or you just you're having a bad season in life, be upfront with your brothers and sisters. Come to a counselor or come to a pastor, and see if there's something that people can help you pray through and walk through and live through. The passage we're going to look at this morning is um, uh, talking about some help, I think, to try to help us assess whether or not we have joy. Because if God calls us to joy, then uh, we we need to know whether we are a joyful person or not so that we can make strides uh, to it with the means that God gives us. So we're going to talk about complaining this morning. Now, if I were to ask you to raise your hand if you thought you were a complainer, my guess is there's nobody would raise their hand here. If I asked you to um, look around the room today and raise your hand if you know a complainer in the room, that might be a different response. Because the fact of the matter is, we don't always know ourselves like other people around us know ourselves. And if we are to pursue joy, we have to know whether or not we're kind of joyful people to begin with or not. So um, hopefully today, next week, and the following week, we're going to try to do some assessing about our own life and our own condition so that we can maybe get on the joy train um, if we're not on it already. So let me pray for us. Then we're going to read some verses out of Numbers and then uh, make some comments. Father, uh, help us. I think about my Savior who who was, according to Scripture, acquainted with with grief, a man of sorrows. And yet it speaks about him in the New Testament. It says, yet for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. That doesn't make sense to us. Joy in concert with things like the cross and in concert with things like grief and in concert with, with things like sorrows, How are those things compatible? And yet they are. And if we are to be representatives of, uh, faithful representatives of the goodness of the gospel, we have to not only pursue joy, but as John Piper says, fight for joy. And if there's one thing I long to have us learn these next couple of weeks is how to fight for joy and so help us I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would speak to us through the words of scripture through my words I pray that uh, he would speak to us um, through some of my stuff and in spite of some of my stuff as needed and that you would hide the enemy bind him muzzle him this morning for surely he hates joyful Christians He loves to see us bound up in misery and sadness and self-pity and all the while missing the light of the glory of the gospel. So we pray for um, his silence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Numbers chapter 11, beginning of verse 1. Soon the people, the Israelite people, began to complain about their hardship and the Lord heard everything they said. Now, let me just give you a little context here. Israel has been out of Egypt for about a, a year now, a year and a month. God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. They are now in the wilderness. This is a, about a year exactly after God parted the Red Sea and buried Pharaoh's army then in the sea. And the people are um, meandering about the Sinai wilderness, the Sinai desert. It's not a great place to be. Uh, there's nothing much in the Sinai except rocks. Uh, there's, there's very few trees. There's um, very little water. Uh, there's no food. Um, we're not sure the, what they're pointing to when it says they were complaining about their hardship. Um, probably wasn't that hot that time of year, 70, 80, 85 during the day. in the the Sinai, but they were not happy about how things were going. So they complained, and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the Lord's anger blazed against them. and Connect that with their complaining. And he sent a fire to rage among them, and he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. And then the people screamed for Moses to help, and when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. And after that, the area was known as Taborah, which means the place of burning, because fire from the Lord had burned among them there. Now that's one incident. Now we're talking about a new one, verse 4. Then the foreign rabble who were traveling with the Israelites began to crave the good things of Egypt. Foreign rabble, this would have been Egyptians, some people groups that were living in Egypt other than the Israelites who saw the plagues that God brought on Egypt that decided they were better off with the Israelites and had left Egypt with them. They began to crave the good things of Egypt, And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. We had all the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic we wanted. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. Now, manna was supernatural food that God had rained down upon them to provide for them in this desolate wilderness. And he would do that for the next 40 years while they were in The wilderness. The manna looked like small coriander seeds, and it was pale yellow like gum resin. The people would go out and gather it from the ground. They made flour by grinding it with hand mills and pounding it in mortars. And then they boiled it in a pot and made it into flat cakes. These cakes tasted like pastries baked with olive oil. The manna came down on the camp with the dew during the night. Now, Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents, whining, and the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. I mean, what did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me, saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. And then the Lord said to Moses, gather before me 70 men who are recognized as elders and leaders of Israel And bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. I'm going to come down and talk to you there. I'll take some of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the spirit upon them also. They will bear the burden of the people along with you, so you will not have to carry it alone. And say to the people, Purify yourselves, for tomorrow you will have meat to eat. You were whining, and the Lord heard you when you cried, Oh, for some meat. We were better off in Egypt. Well, now the Lord will give you meat and you're going to have to eat it. And it won't be just for a day or two or for five or ten or even twenty. You will eat it for a whole month until you gag and are sick of it. For you have rejected the Lord who is here among you, and you have whined to him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Now dropping down to verse 31. Now the Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. And for miles in every direction, there were quail flying about three feet above the ground. And so the people went out and caught quail all that day and through the, throughout the night and all the next day too. No one gathered less than 50 bushels. That's a lot of bird. They spread the quail all around the camp to dry. But while they were gorging themselves on the meat, while it was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord blazed against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. And so that place was called... Kibroth, Hatava, which means graves of gluttony, because there they buried the people who had craved meat from Egypt. And we'll stop there. The issue with joy, or maybe we should say the lack of joy, is problem roots. Problem roots. What's growing above ground in unhappiness has its origin in what's below the ground again we're going to deal dive into this more specifically next week and the following week i want to talk today especially about discontentment which is the immediate root below our unhappiness discontentment and for these people that the complaining that comes out of the discontentment now this kind of track record of discontentment and the complaining it brings about, you're going to see from uh, Numbers 11 on through the next 10 chapters. And here's the pattern. Discontentment, complaining, judgment. Uh, I should put after complaining, rebellion. Discontentment, uh, complaining, rebellion, and then God's judgment. You're going to see this for 10 chapters. It's the people. It's Miriam and Aaron. It's Korah time and time again, there is this rebellion that comes out and and saying, God, you are failing us. God, you are failing us. And their first complaint here, as I said, we don't really know what it was. It simply says it was a hardship. And God, I mean, God got out the big weaponry, didn't he? He brings fire to the camp. He doesn't put it down in the center of the camp. He puts it down the perimeters, and people are dying from the fires burning around the camp. And this is just, to, I think this is just a snapshot to give us an idea of the rebellion of the people and God's response to, to their rebellion. Then we get to verse 4, and now we see a new complaint. And, you know, when we read the stories of Israel in the Old Testament, I, I think sometimes we, we sell them short. <laughs> and we think, I, I want to ask myself, what would I do in that environment? And I remember when we were traveling down to Sinai um, on a bus back in 2008, And I'm looking around at this barren moonscape. I mean, there's just nothing there. I'm thinking, I've been, and I was preaching through Exodus at the time. I'm thinking to myself, I've been too hard on these Israelites. What would I do if I was out there with 2 million, depending how you uh, figure the stats of the Old Testament, 2 million to 6 million people out there, no food, no water, no, uh, you can't stay one place any length of time. So even if the ground was uh, workable to plant crops, you're not getting anything from the soil. and you're migratory for 40 years, Who, who wouldn't grumble, right? And so the people, they're eating, they have food to eat, and we can look at the Israelites and say, well, you've got food to eat. Can you imagine eating the same thing again and again and again, day in and out, week in and out, month in and out, year in and out for 40 years? Now, the good thing about the manna is it sounds like it, was, it had a sweetness to it and, and that it was tasty. It wasn't just something blah. But the people are getting tired of eating the same thing again and again. As I've traveled in other countries, one of the, I, I always am intrigued by uh, the culture and how people live and go into grocery stores. If I want to buy some breakfast cereal and I go down here to Wise, you know, I, got, I got a choice of about 100 different kinds in an aisle that's maybe 60, 70 feet, 80 feet long. You go to some other places in the world, you go into a grocery store, they might not even have breakfast cereal. Or if they do, they have two kinds. And so let's have a little sympathy for these people. They're tired of eating the same thing for a year now. But what happens is their cry is not really out to God to provide for them. They're looking for something else, somewhere else to be their provider. And now they're looking back to Egypt. Oh, if we could only be back in Egypt, we had free fish and we had all these products from the garden, everything we wanted to eat. We had the variety back there. Oh, if we just go back to Egypt. And you and I know what it's like to have a selective memory about the past, don't we? We look back and we say, oh, this was the best of times. Somebody else that was back there said, I don't remember it that way. Everything was hunky-dory back there. We have all these problems today. Oh, if we could only go back in time there, or if we lived a different place, oh, if we could only go back. One of the things that's interesting today with the, um, with the internet is you see these things pop up sometimes. You want to find, you wanna find uh, out what your people from, your colleagues from high school are doing? You can track them down. Do you know how many people have tracked down old lovers from high school and 20 years later tried to strike up a relationship with them? What's that all about? Selective memory. I remember my boyfriend, my girlfriend. They were nothing like my husband, my wife. We just go back there and we, we can recreate the past. And then they go back there and they marry them and like, what was I thinking? These people were slaves in Egypt, right? Oh, if we could only go back to Egypt. When Moses had first come to the children of Israel and he he told them that God is is going to, he's seen their problems, he's seen their struggles and and he's going to deliver you. Exodus 4, 31, it says that when the people heard this, they bowed to the ground before the Lord and they worshiped him for thinking of them in their misery. Now, all of a sudden, they look back to Egypt. What do they see? What do they remember? Not misery. All the food they had back there. God's like, wait a minute. Don't you remember that when you were back there, you were making bricks? And if you didn't make enough bricks, your masters would whip you. And when you became something of a problem to your masters. They made you go out and forage for your own straw for the bricks and said, "Uh, we're not going to provide you straw anymore. Now you have to make the same number of bricks, but you have to find the straw yourself. And if you didn't make enough bricks, they'd whip you. Did you forget that? The problem with what makes us happy, what makes us joyful is so often it is a moving target. What I mean is, we have one aspiration, and, and, and we achieve that, and now something else is required to make us happy. And so, you're a young person, and uh, you're getting out of uh, high school, you're going into college, and now you're starting to think ahead about your life, and, and you want to find somebody to spend your life with. And you have some broken relationships, and things aren't going well, and you're You're frustrated and you're not happy because you don't have that man, you don't have that woman to spend your life with. And so that's that's kind of like this permanent underbelly of unhappiness because this is not true in your life. And then you find someone. And lo and behold, you begin a relationship and, and you're dating and it's looking promising and the next thing you know, you're engaged and you're married. Now you're happy. And people come up to you weeks after your wedding and ask you, how's it going? Oh, it's wonderful. I'm so happy, things are awesome. And those same people come up to you a year, year and a half, two years after you're married, and now it's not so awesome anymore. And it's not that the marriage is bad, but this the grounds for your happiness have now shifted. And now you're thinking you're kind of in a dead-end job and you, you've got this wife to support and, and hopefully a children in the days ahead, and, but you're stuck in a dead-end job and even though you have a college degree, you're not finding a career track profession that's going to pay you enough to, to provide for your family, so you think. So there's this kind of unsettledness in your spirit and you're not really happy even though you have the thing that you once thought would make you happy. And then a year or two down the road, you find that perfect job. You're like lots of chances for advancement. I can see the future is bright. People ask you after you're in this job for a week or two or a month or two, how's your job going? It's God, great. I'm really excited. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. I'm full of joy because things are going right with this career track. And then you and your wife want to start a family. And you're trying. And you're trying, and you're trying, and you're trying. And three years later, still no children. And when people talk to you and they ask if you're happy or not, because now you have the wife and now you have the career track, you're not really happy. Why? Because you haven't been able to have a child. And then maybe the day comes when you have a child. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? It's this moving target. What makes me content today is not what's going to make me content tomorrow or make me content next year. And so we are looking at this and at this, and the things that aren't sure, the things that aren't secure, are the grounds for our contentment and ultimately our happiness and our joy And because the things aren't sure, neither is our joy. Now, it's not only the people complaining in this passage. Moses starts to complain as well. Verse 11, he speaks about these Israelites. (laughs) I love it. These people. (laughs) These people. You just hear. "Ah." And in fairness, Moses never wanted the job to begin with. Go back to Exodus 3 when God's calling Moses, I want you to lead these people out of uh, slavery and you're going to be my representative before Pharaoh. I'm going to do all these plagues and so forth. And like Moses is like, you have got the wrong guy. No, 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 I got the right guy. You're the, you're the one I want. No, I, I can't speak. I, I can't speak in public. I'm the wrong. No, you're the right guy. Six times in three chapters, Moses says no, no, no. He begs God not to use him. He pleads with God. He insists. He protests all to no avail. God calls him. Now he's saying, I told you (laughs) I never wanted this job. I never wanted to lead these these people. I'm I'm not your guy. Now, here's what's interesting. How God handles Moses versus how God handles the people, both complaining. And, and we see in verse uh, 1 already the Lord's anger. The people are complaining. The Lord's anger blazed against them. He sends a fire. Verse 10, um, the Lord, Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining. And the Lord became extremely angry. Verses 18, And God says, I'm gonna, I've had it with these people. I'm going to give them meat, but they're not going to like what's going to happen as a result. That's what he's doing with the people. What's he do with Moses? Moses said, "I can't handle all these people. They're they're a pain in the neck." And he says, "Okay, I'll give you help. We're going to give you seventy elders. I'm going to put my spirit on them as well, and they're going to help you out." Now, why the difference? Both complaining. Why the difference? This is this is important because all of us complain, right? Uh, Amen. We all complain. But there seems to be a, a difference in how God responds to complain. Uh, I love to read the, the Old Testament prophets. These guys were just as, they were just as uh, honest, candid as you can possibly imagine. Great men of God who were faithful in, in executing God's call in their lives, but they often had miserable lives, and they would complain. I don't care whether you're talking David in Psalm 64 or Jeremiah in Jeremiah 12 or Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1. They, They would complain. And you can read the headings in your Bible. They're complaining. And yet God does not do with them what he did with the Israelites here. What's the difference? What were the people saying? What were the people putting their hope in when they were tired of the same food they were getting? What did they say? God give us... Different kinds of food? Let's go back to Egypt. (laughs) There's a different hope that they're looking for. Their hope is in a different place, going back to the selective memory. We go back into slavery, but at least we have all the kinds of food we want. doesn't seem like they're looking to God for the hope and the help that they so desperately need. Moses, different story. Moses doesn't want to go back to Egypt. He doesn't like the job that he has, but he looks the, he's crying out to God in his prayer. The people, what are they doing? They're crying out to themselves, say, let's go back to Egypt. Our hope is in Egypt. Moses is like, my hope is in you, God. I've had it up to here with these people. But you're where my hope is. That's where Jeremiah's hope was. That's where Habakkuk's hope was. That's where David's hope was. I'll tell you the story, then I'll wrap up. Betty and I, um, when I got out of seminary, we pastored a church, a little church in upstate Michigan. And we were um, almost halfway uh, between the equator and the North Pole. The 45th parallel, we were that far north. The 45th parallel was uh, in our community. Now, the further north you go, the, the darker it gets during the winter. Right, if you live in a place like Alaska, you can have darkness for a couple months. And there is something that is listed under depression in the DSM five, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, called sad, S A D. Some of you know what this is: seasonal affective disorder. That means you don't get enough sunshine in the winter, then you get depressed, you get lethargic, you don't feel like eating, you don't feel like doing anything. It's a kind of depression. So what do people do who wrestle with sad? They buy light boxes. And they sit them on their desks, and they're to be exposed to this light box. So if you live in Barrow, Alaska, where it's almost 70 days of darkness out of the year, you put this light box on your desk, you absorb a, a light similar to the sun. For an hour, hour and a half every day. Now, now here's, here's what I want us to wrestle with the next couple of weeks. Uh, and you know, you feel better when the sun's out too, don't you? After we've had cloudy days for a lot of May and like sunshine, all the bad things don't feel as bad now. I want you to ask yourself the next couple of weeks what's my sunshine? What is it that I need to feel good with? What has to happen that I feel happy with, that I feel joyful with? What's your sunshine? And then we're going to get to the last message and talk about the Christ sunshine. Let me pray for us. Father, we in this nation are a blessed, And It sure isn't because we have somehow earned that blessing. It is your grace. And yet, some of us would admit it seems like the more we're blessed, the more miserable we become. How can that be? And my prayer would be for these next couple of weeks, Father, that you would just kind of um, help us let our guards down to ask ourselves some hard questions. First of all, today, maybe even ask the people we're married to or the children we have or the parents we have, not do I complain ever, but am I a complainer? Is this what marks me? And to ask myself, am I I full of self-pity and I see far better the things that go wrong in my life than the things that go right? I'm far more experienced with the things I grumble about than the grace you give me. And then in these weeks ahead, to allow the Spirit of God, the Word of God, to do some surgery in our lives. That we might become the people of joy that the Bible depicts us as. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?